Well, welcome. <laughs> Camera, hi. I hope you said welcome in your living room. Uh, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. I want to do a couple things before we get started. The first one is that I want to introduce you. Where did he go? There he is. Uh, Adam, our, our new student pastor, is here. This is his first day on staff. He and Jim Stites are doing like a little kind of two-week overlap trade-off. Jim's last day is going to be August 2nd. Adam's first day is today. And then there's some time for Adam to get to know the ministry, for Jim to disseminate some information, and Erica and Adam to get themselves on the same page so that we can move forward. So this is Adam, if you want to stand up. There he is. If you're, uh, if you're watching us online, uh, Adam's wearing like a navy blue polo and he waved at everybody. <laughs> um, but I would encourage you to take a second um, today before you leave. You can introduce yourself to Adam. Uh, also, if you're not here, you're, we encourage you to come on Wednesday night. We're having Betty Ray's ice cream truck here in our parking lot. Adam will be there. It'll be a great chance to get to know him to introduce yourself, to see him there if you don't get a chance to do that this morning. Uh, One kind of piece on that Wednesday night. We are really excited about the opportunity to be able to see uh, our congregation. And so for some people, we haven't maybe seen you in four months, and we would love to be able to see you that night. Betty Ray's, the truck will be here. Um, It'll be here at no no cost to you. So you can come and and grab some ice cream. You can either like literally just like dine and dash, like eat, get your ice, get out of your car, get your ice cream, hop back in your car and leave. Or you're welcome to come grab some ice cream and park and kind of hang out in the parking lot for a little while and see some other folks within our congregation. But an important caveat to that, we as a church and as a staff have been very um, intentional and um, it's been a high priority for us to be very responsible and caring as it relates to both the, the people in our congregation and our community in the middle of all of uh, this COVID coronavirus stuff. And we want to continue to do that. And so we recognize that we're walking a line here of trying to provide a way for our congregation to see one another and for our staff to be able to interact with our congregation while also trying to be continue to be kind and considerate and caring in our community. And so we encourage you to come. Uh, We encourage you to spend some time and to hang out for a little while in the parking lot, but we also encourage you to to be very cognizant of maintaining some distance, some social distance, physical distance away from one another. Uh, in the parking lot. And we'll try to help out with that. There'll be markings on the ground and we'll have the line kind of working in a very particular way so that we maintain distance. But we don't want it to just become like a free-for-all plus ice cream in our parking lot. Um, We'd love the chance to just be able to spend a little bit of time in each other's vicinity in a way that we haven't been able to do for a few months here, but we want to be able to do that responsibly and in a way that's caring and considerate to one another and to our community. So be cognizant when you're here. If you choose to come on Wednesday, we look forward to seeing you there and you have a chance to meet Adam and introduce yourself at that time. We're going to be this morning in Esther chapter four. So if you have a Bible with you, you've got one on your phone, you want to open that up. Uh, We're going to handle this kind of a similar way to how we've been working with Esther thus far. And that's, we're going to work our way through the story and talk about what's happening, draw some things out that we should see, and, um, and then we'll take that and 
ask ourselves, how does this apply to us? What do we do with this? And there'll be a component of that that's kind of teaching. How is it that we should read this kind of story? And then there'll be a part of that that's more preaching because I got some things I want to say. So uh, let's pray and then we'll jump into Esther chapter four. God, thanks for uh, this morning. Lord, for the chance to be together and to declare uh, Christ our Savior. God, that uh, there will be a day when your glory appears in full and we will spend all of eternity just basking in that, Lord. And we look forward to that. And the chance to be together as a body, whether here physically or to do this uh, digitally, God, and to declare that together is a gift to the church. And it's one that uh, I know, at least for myself, that this last four-month season here has taught me to to value in a new and in a special way. I pray that you would continue to cultivate that within our hearts. God, I pray that your spirit would be among us this morning. Uh, Take the truth of your word, impress it into our hearts. Take uh, our time and our offerings of whether it's worship through song or worship through your word, God, and I pray you'd use those to glorify yourself. God, we pray that you would encourage or convict or challenge or comfort, uh, as you know, each of us needs here this morning. God, above all of that, we pray that Christ would be exalted. God, that we would see him clearly in your word, that we would declare our praises to him passionately in song, that we would model Christ intentionally to one another during our time this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, whether online or via podcast or here physically, you heard Jim work through Esther chapter 3, and he made a comment at at one point, pretty briefly, about Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says this, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And Jim did a really wonderful job of talking about how God's sovereignty, his universal power and ability to control all things in his creation and God's providence, the way that he works often in invisible ways in concrete circumstances to advance his purposes, how those two aspects of God, his sovereignty and his providential working are comforts to us. Jim worked through three things that are not true about God's sovereignty and providence. He went through three encouragements that we should be able to draw from the grace of God's sovereignty and providence. And he talked about, real briefly, this verse, Romans 8, 28. The book of Esther is an extended picture of how Romans 8, 28, that God could work all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, how that could be possible even in a situation that looks incredibly broken and incredibly dark, that's filled with sin and filled with just all of the dark kind of realities that exist being humans in a broken world, and yet God is working those things together for good. The challenge in reading something like this, 10 chapters in the middle of your Old Testament, is to say, How do I take that theological truth that I see on display and make it practical in my own life, comforting in my own life? How do I see God's grace and have peace as a result of God's sovereignty and providence? That's what we're trying to unfold as we look through 
the book of Esther. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to work verses 1 through 9. We'll read those, point some things out. Then we'll look at 10 through 17, and then we'll kind of step back and see how all this fits together, big picture. So uh, Sarah is going to read for us, and she's going to start, if you'll follow along, in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited among anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hekath, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hekath went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hakath might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hakath came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Thanks, sir. Let's just point a few things out. Verses 1 and 2, Mordecai is in great distress over the edict that's been given from really from Haman, but Hashuerish gave his signet ring to Haman so that he could make it law that all the, the Jewish people are to be destroyed on a certain day months down the road. We know the depth of Mordecai's distress because he's wearing sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. If you were to take the Old Testament and look at that, that is a sign of grief and a sign of sorrow. It's accompanied usually by lament. He's very, very distressed, as are all of the Jewish people. That's verse 3. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fast, fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Their distress and their grief, their weeping and fasting is rightly understood. I mean, we get how Something like chapter 3 and the edict that exists there could happen, and then this would be the appropriate response. This is going to take just a little bit of work, but go with me uh, for a second here. If you were to flip to Joel chapter 2, the Old Testament prophet, look at verses 12 to 14, it says this, even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind with him. Those are the words of the Lord through the prophet Joel to the Israelite people. Turn to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, 
What do we see the Jewish people in Persia doing? Fasting, weeping, lamenting. It's actually the same Hebrew word there in Joel chapter two as it is in Esther chapter four. It just gets a little different rendering. The word is misped, M-I-S-P-E-D. It means to lament, to wail, like think like you would if you were at a funeral for a very close loved one. You would wail, mourn, lament. The passage goes on. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He might relent from sending disaster. Who knows? He may leave a blessing behind with him. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, later in this chapter, we're going to have our big moment where Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows? Maybe you've been brought to your royal position for such a time as this. Right before that, Mordecai says, even if you don't go into the king, salvation or relief for the Jewish people will arise from another place. The similar wording here is intentional. What are the Jewish people doing? It's not just that there's despair and there's grief. There's a certain kind of despair and grief, a forward-looking, forward-hoping turning to the Lord who is gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and who will relent and who knows, leave a blessing behind with him. What's happening in Persia? The people are weeping, fasting, lamenting, or mourning, turning to the Lord. Why? That he might, sovereign, providential God, relent save his people. Lament as a biblical construct, there are uh, a number of Psalms, almost a third of them contain some form of lament. The book of Job has a lot of lament. To lament is to bring your pain to God and to vocalize it, to say to God, this is how I hurt, this is how I grieve, this is where my pain is, but to do so with a posture that says, but my faith is in you. I'm looking to you because I know you're good. I know you're steadfast. And like Jim said last week, the truth of God's sovereignty and providence doesn't negate our pain. It gives us the unique opportunity as Christians to lament our pain. Speak it to God. Know that he is good and sovereign and in control and that Romans 8, 28, he's working together all things for the good of those who love him. That's what's happening here at the start of Esther chapter four. The echo of Joel two should ring in our ears. Now, a Jewish individual who read this in the original audience was much more familiar with their Old Testament than we are. And so it would have rang in their ears. They would have seen this act, not just one of utter despair, but a grief filled with hope that by turning to the Lord, he would relent. And who knows? Maybe he would leave behind a blessing with him. That's exactly what ends up happening here in Esther. Spoiler alert, if you've never read the book, the Jewish people don't get destroyed. God saves his people. And the blessing that's left behind at the book uh, at the end of the book of Esther is that the Jewish people are intact. The line of Abraham, the line of David is preserved. The people of God are moving forward, protected by the hand of God and the ultimate blessing of the Messiah is still to come through those people. That is where the book of Esther 
is headed. Mordecai's distress, starting in verse 4, creates distress in Esther. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came, reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. On first reading, you might think to yourself, she must be overcome with fear because she heard the edict. But look back down. She's overcome with fear, and what does she do? She sends clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth. Look down in verse 8. It's not until the first exchange happens via an intermediary here between Esther and Mordecai that Mordecai sends a copy of the the decree to Esther so that she might understand why it is that he's mourning, why it is that he's wearing sackcloth and weeping and fasting and lamenting. Esther's fear initially is entirely related to Mordecai's distress. He's so distressed that this individual, her guardian, who's been telling her for years to hide her Jewish identity out of protection, is now standing in front of the king's gate, which a couple weeks ago we talked about, not a gate like you would walk through a gate, but it's a civic center. It's where the government operates out of. He's standing outside of that doing what? Identifying with the Jewish people. He's letting everyone know, I am Jewish. And this decree has utterly broken me. I'm crying bitterly out front for something to change. And Esther sees that and it creates fear in her. Send him some clothes. Someone stop him from doing that or else they're going to know that we're Jewish. She empathizes. I see your pain. The best I can do for you initially is offer you some clothing and try to help you protect yourself. That empathy, though, eventually is going to turn to compassion. Compassion is acting in order to relieve someone's suffering. Esther's initial act, let's just cover your suffering. I see it. Let me help you try to hide it. Her act of going into the king's presence, which happens in chapter five, that's an act of compassion. I will relieve the suffering, not just of Mordecai, but of all of my people. History's best example, humanity's best example of empathy and compassion is what we see in Jesus. We saw recently in Hebrews that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's able to sympathize with our weakness. He took on flesh, Philippians chapter two felt, knows the constraints of living in a mortal body in a broken world, saw the physical suffering of people, sick, hungry, thirsty, disabled, and he was moved to relieve that pain. And so from an eternal perspective, this unbelievable act of compassion happens when Jesus goes to the cross in our place. It's not just, I see your pain and the suffering, it's, I'm acting, God is acting in Jesus to relieve that pain and suffering. That's the scene here. Esther sees the pain and Mordecai's in and is now going to act to relieve the pain that all of her people are experiencing. Let's keep reading. Sarah, if you'll pick back up in verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. Esther spoke to Hakath and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies 
to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fact of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. The book of Esther is set up as a series of these striking, quick, dramatic reversals, if you will. They look like they're just happenstance or coincidence or good or bad fortune, but we're seeing that this is God acting in his providence and in his sovereignty. Vashti goes from queen literally one minute to the next minute, she's kicked out of the palace. Esther goes from orphaned Jewish girl to queen of Persia. Ahasuerush goes from being in mortal danger of being assassinated in one moment to having his conspirators killed the next moment. Mordecai goes from being the king's savior to putting all of the Jewish people in danger. Haman goes from being personally offended by Mordecai to ordering the extermination of all of the Jews living in Persia. They happen rapid fire. There are a few that happen in chapter four. One of them is subtle, but worth noting. Two of them are very significant. Look at verse 17. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. That's the flip. Back in chapter two, we were told that Esther obeyed Mordecai's orders as she had always done while he raised her. He tells her to conceal her Jewish heritage. She does. He encourages her to go into the presence of the king. And while she's initially unwilling, by the end of chapter four, she's willing to go in. See the reversal. At the end of chapter four, Mordecai's about to do everything that Esther tells him to do. That would have been such a striking statement for someone who read this passage in this culture that a male guardian would go and do what his female, you know, we'll say subordinate in this culture told him to do. And it's not the last time that's going to happen in the book of Esther. In fact, it happens repeatedly. There's been a switch. Mordecai went from, here, let me tell you what to do, and Esther obeying, to now Esther saying, Mordecai, let me tell you what to go and do, and Mordecai saying, Okay, I will do that. Here's a second one. Notice the flip in Esther and her desire for her safety. Initially, she's unwilling to go in to the king. Verse eight, Mordecai says, go in, command her to approach the king, implore his favor, plead with him personally. Verse 10, Esther says, anyone who goes in there uninvited has one penalty, the death penalty. It would be suicide, Mordecai. I'm not willing 
to go in. There's a little more back and forth. And by the end of verse 16, Esther's had a complete change of heart. We don't know how much time passed in there, how long these conversations played out over, but in a seven-verse stretch for us, she's gone from self-preservation, which don't think that that's, you know, me talking poorly about Esther. We all have the desire for self-preservation inside of us. So she goes from that to, if I perish, I perish. Have everybody fast for me for three days, day and night, don't eat, don't drink. I'll do the same here and then I'm going in there and if I perish, I perish. It's a very Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. Fiery furnace, heat it up. And they say, throw us in. If we burn, we burn. Esther says, I'm going into the king's presence. If I die, I die. In seven verses, a total reversal of how she views that situation. Last one, probably most important is Esther and her identity. Verse eight, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Since the moment she was brought into the, you know, the Persian bachelor, which is how Jim referred to it last week, Mordecai's orders had been what? Don't tell him your ethnicity or your identity. And now he says, you need to go in and plead for your people. So it's not just that she needs to walk in and hope the king doesn't kill her because she came in uninvited. It's also that she needs to go in, stand before him and say, all the people that you just said could be destroyed, I'm one of them. And hope he doesn't kill her. And she's willing to identify with that. A total reversal in how she approaches her identity as one of God's people. Mordecai is pleading with her to do that. Notice something else. He shapes the conversation, Mordecai does, in an interesting way. Don't think, this is verse 13, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Mordecai says, you go into the king's presence, you might die. He could tip the golden scepter to you and you live. You don't go into the king's presence, you will die. You and your father's family, all of your people. And Esther, after having hid her identity for years, is prepared to step into that light at her own peril. It's the stacking up of all of these reversals that lead to this verbal high point in the book of Esther. Esther chapter four, verse 14. Vashti's deposed as queen. Esther rises into her spot. The king is saved by Mordecai and Esther, but Haman gets honored. Mordecai won't honor Haman by bowing, and so Haman orders the destruction of all the Jewish people. Esther is presented with this dilemma, and now she's willing to go in. And Mordecai says, who knows? 
Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. What do we do with this? How do we take this situation and correctly apply it to our lives today? Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. The greatest dramatic reversal of all time happens at Calvary through Jesus, who came from the Jewish people, who were saved by God's sovereign providential work in the days of Esther. Jesus, sinless, spotless, goes to the cross, the place where you and I should have been, a place that his sinless perfection ought to have given him the ability to avoid, and yet he does it joyfully. It should have been you and me there. Instead, it was him. Jesus, definitely dead, taken off the cross, given a traditional burial, sealed inside a tomb. Death is a final thing. It's a period at the end of a sentence, a hard stop, and yet Jesus turns it into a comma. Just a pause before a moment of triumph. And because of that, the doors of salvation are blown open for all who would be drawn into and receive the grace of God. Grace is grace because it's undeserved. That is the great reversal of all of human history, is that sinful people who ought to be thrust from the presence of the Lord, thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ, can be swept into his loving and gracious arms for all of eternity. That's grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn that. It was given to us. Application number one of this message is that it's possible that in this moment or over a season of time, God has been sovereignly and providentially working in your heart to accomplish his eternal purpose and promise, and that is to draw to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and he might be drawing you into that during this season of life. And the, the simplest, most joyful uh, you know, application handle I can give you is to receive that grace and cling to it for the rest of your life. The reversal of the cross has made it possible for you to experience salvation. Clutch on to that. Know that once you receive that, he will hold you fast and you walk out all of your days living in the joy and the power of that grace. Here's a little teaching moment. Application number two. We read the Bible so individualistically that we see this moment in Esther. Esther 4.14. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And in the middle of chapter 4 of a 10-chapter book, we think we've reached the climax of the story. Here it is. This moment where Esther, the individual, has this big moment and she says, I'm going in there and if I perish, I perish. And we're cheering on Esther. But if you were a Jewish individual and you read this book, what's the high point? When all your people are saved. I see Esther going into the king 
Yeah, great. Thank you, Esther. Get me to chapter nine, where a climax would normally be, so I can read about how all of my people live. It's a story about God's people and the way he works sovereignly and providentially through a person to advance a global, eternal purpose. We read Esther. I'm going to preach now, okay? Tighten your mask. We read Esther and we think to ourselves, where is my Esther moment where I walk in before the king and I say, if I perish, I perish, as if the story ends there. That I would have my moment of faith-filled courage and that is the pinnacle of what God is doing on this huge earth and it's in me and in that moment when in reality, if you ever had that moment, it wouldn't be about you. It would be about what God is doing on behalf of his purposes globally and eternally through you. Esther goes in before the queen or the king not because she's so full of courage but because the outward looking uh, outward facing situation demands that she do it. That's why she says if I perish I perish. I'll go. Who knows? He might relent and leave a blessing behind with him. How do you apply that correctly? Look, if you're sitting in here, you're watching at home and you've received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, the blessing that God left behind in the days of Esther has fallen to you. The savior came through the Jewish people because God preserved the Jewish people in the days of Esther. The church globally exists because of God's sovereign, providential guiding and fulfillment of his promises and his purposes, and it involves individuals, and the individuals matter, and your receiving of that grace is on an individual basis. No one can do it for you, but once into that, it is about God's purpose outside of you. And so the question becomes this, by the grace of God, Are you willing to set safety aside for the sake of God's purposes and promises advancing in the world? Safety can mean a lot of things. In America, safety mostly means comfort. It's not a lot of danger for being a Christian in America, but it can at times be more comfortable to not identify with God's people. One of the things that the grace of God does inside of a believer is draws you into the family of God. You identify with that by the way you spend your time, by the way you use your words, by how you set up your priorities, by the types of conversations you would have, by the way that you care for people, by the way you spend your money. Are you willing, by God's grace, to identify with the people of God? Set safety and comfort aside so that the plans and purposes of God could be advanced through you. Here's one of the beauties of the book of Esther. She's reluctant at first. She sends the first messenger back to Mordecai and says, hey, not going, suicide. Reminds you of Moses a little bit, who God says, I want you to lead my people. Go speak before Pharaoh. And Moses says, find somebody who can talk better. God says, no, I'm using you to advance a purpose 
so much bigger than you. We think about our own lives and our own moments as though what God is doing is constricted or relegated strictly to us when in reality what God is doing is through you to the world to advance a global eternal purpose. So as we've been talking about in the book of Esther, mundane everyday moments in the hands of a sovereign, providentially working God have immense power. So every time you're faced with a conversation or a decision and there's the opportunity to choose comfort or safety, there's the opportunity to hide from identifying yourself with the people of God, or there's a chance to allow yourself to be used by God and for him to work through you out into the world. Does that mean everybody packs up their stuff and goes to be a missionary overseas among an unreached people group? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that the conversation you have with your children around the dining room table one night could be the way in which God works inside that individual to go and share the gospel. The conversation you have with a coworker could be the thing that draws them into relationship with Jesus. But when we choose safety and comfort, instead of a full identification with the people of God, we do kind of the first half of Esther chapter four and say, I'm not willing to do it. What are the consequences for me? The grace of God makes it possible for us to do the second half of Esther chapter four. If I perish, I perish. If I lose a little standing, I lose a little standing. If this costs me a little bit, it costs me and it's okay because seeing God fulfill his global promise, his global purposes is the aim and objective and one of the deepest joys of my life. I'll close with this. I think often about some of the more difficult conversations that we have in life, whether that's with a child or a family member, it could be someone that you live near, a neighbor, a friend that you're particularly close to, and it seems like they've made a decision in their life that's just blown everything. And you've been telling them for years, as a parent in your upbringing of them or as a friend in your counseling to them, you've been telling them for years not to make those kinds of decisions that, that causes pain that there's something better available. And they do it again and they come to you and all of their grief and their distress causes you distress, but you just wanna give them the thing to cover it. I just don't wanna have this conversation again. I don't wanna do this thing again. When there's an opportunity in compassion to say, I'll set aside how it is that you view me. I'll set aside how it is that this might impact me, whether that be in a time sense, an energy sense, and I'll offer you the thing that could relieve your pain. And that thing is Jesus, a savior. Those moments are Esther four moments. But the impact of those moments are Esther five through 10 moments where God takes that and advances his purposes and advances his promises, fulfills his promises and plans to the ends of the earth. We have no control over those. God controls those things. We have control 
of the moment-by-moment, day-by-day decisions and actions that we take to humble and submit ourselves, to allow the grace of God to fill us in such a way that we would be willing to live and identify as the people of God and set aside safety and security and comfort that his purposes and plans might be advanced through us, not stop at us as if we are the end point. Two questions. Worship team, you guys can come up and then we'll close with a couple of songs. Question number one is simply this. Have you received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ? If not, part of his working to fulfill his eternal purposes and promises is drawing people into his global family. He could be doing that inside of you today. You have a conversation with a person that you're here with. You can have a conversation likely with someone who's in the living room watching there with you. You could give a phone call to the office. We would love to talk. Any of those people would love to talk with you about what that looks like and what it means to receive the grace of God for salvation. Question number two is this. No past reluctancy, no past disobedience can disqualify you from being used by God now. So my question for you now is, are you willing to allow the grace of God to move inside you in such a way that you act with this kind of, if I perish, I perish faithfulness? Not that you would become a moral example, not that you would be lifted high, not that that's the end of God's work in you, but so that God might work beyond you. A great way to spend some time in response to this passage would be searching in your own heart and praying. God, there are times I hold back because of fill in the blank thing for you. Would your grace fill me so that I can move past that? Would you capture me with the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel? And would that compel me into action? So question number two is, what are those spots in life? And are you willing to submit those to the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God working inside of you that he might fulfill his purposes beyond and through you? Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.